Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den under the stairs here at Dirt Towers in Chorley in the northwest of England. Ah, we return to Dungeons and Dragons, our inner circle. I'm surrounded by my stuff. The great library of RPGs and my grognard files has been expanded over the summer thanks to late evenings craft beer and internet shopping. The latest impulse purchases include West End Star Wars, a second edition Grammar World, 13th Age in Glorantha, Star Trek Adventures from Modiphius, Savage Worlds, Sci World, the first edition of Champions, The Fall of Delta Green and The Fantasy Trip. There's so much great RPG materials behind us and being produced at the moment and promised in the future, it's difficult to know when I'm going to play them. I'm currently working on methods of manipulating time and space, but in the meantime, online play using the Roll20 platform has increased the opportunities for playing enormously. For goodness sake, don't let me turn into a collector. Plays the thing. I've also got my ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe, the ultimate eternal champion. I'll just give it a tap. Whoa, she seems to be entering Ravenloft in an 80s power blows. She's wearing stiletto boots and digging her heel into discarded images. Her hair is massive. And is that meatloaf setting fire to a coffin? Well, big guy, if you really want to. We've had another review on iTunes. This time it's from Golden Boat in the United States, where I've just returned from holidaying. A constant companion on my commute these past several months and immediately jumps to the number one slot when a new episode drops. The series is steeped in nostalgia, but over time the lens focuses not so much on the past as on the present and how this group of 50-something-year-old role players reconnect with a hobby that they've come to love all over again. The Venn diagram of my role-playing experiences overlaps with these guys like a total eclipse of the sun. My favourite bit of the show is when Dirk and Blythe chat about the strengths and weaknesses of a particular rule system. Not so much for the rules talk, which is always very good, but because it's delightful to share the friendly affection these two lifelong friends and armchair adventurers have for each other. Long may they delve. Oh, thanks for that golden boat. Please leave a review or send an email as it boosts our tiny self-esteem. For this episode, we're going to move down a gear. Oh yes, there are lower gears. There's no interviews or Diana Jones award-winning actual play this time. Just us, the armchair adventurers. Me, Blythe, the Daily Dwarf and Eddie, reflecting on a campaign that we recently completed. Let me reach down a file. Now, it may surprise regular listeners that the game we've played the most recently, by some degree, is Dungeons & Dragons. 
Stonking's Thunder was published by Wizards of the Coast in 2016. Take a stand with or against the Giants in this adventure for the world's greatest role-playing game. Blythe joins me in the Port Street pub in Manchester for us to open the box and review the adventure while exploring some of our attitudes towards campaigns and playing D&D 5th edition. Daily Dwarf from Twitter has written an interesting piece examining the heritage of the campaign in the original GDQ modules from TSR. He fought against the Giants over 35 years ago and he fought them again. How did the two experiences compare? Blythe returns for a class war behind the Games Master screen before we head down the garden to speak to Ed in his shed, where he gives some practical tips on how to create an electronic tabletop with dynamic maps and discusses campaign fatigue. At the end, I'll return with the usual notice board and thanks to the generous support of the Grog Squad who helped to pay for this bobbins in Patreon. Now, I should mention that Coronation Street is the world's longest continuing television drama, or soap opera, and it's set in a fictional northwest English town near Manchester, and that Ken Barlow is the longest-serving character, still played by Bill Roach, who is a Tory druid. Go figure. The reason for this footnote will become clear. Until then... Ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box! Welcome to the room of role-playing rambling. We're on tour again. Uh, this time we're in the greatest city in the world, Manchester, and we're in a pub again. Hey! hey. Now, we've... Uh, it's going to be coherent, be coherent this, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> two, three pints in. Um, we decided to uh, turn our backs on our usual haunt in uh, Manchester and come to Port Street Beer House. And uh, for those of you who are lucky enough to attend Grog Meet every year, Grog Meet Eve, this is where we usually have we good do. night drinks. Yes. Very convivial atmosphere, a uh, bit noisy outside. Noisy outside, there's no one here on the top floor. Yeah. Which is perfect for us. Perfect. We don't, we don't come out to socialise with people. <laughs> We're on our own. We're on our own. Uh, uh, so before, before the crowds of throngs start thronging, <laughs> let's get chatting. <laughs> And we're going to talk to, about um, about Storm King's Thunder, mm. an occasional series where we look at a campaign that we've been playing. Yeah. This is the first time I've played D&D in this way, ever, really. Yeah, because, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. Because in previous uh, times, as we've covered previously on the, on, on the podcast, um, when we played it as youngsters, we only played... We, it, we, it was terrible. Youngsters? It's like, youngsters. A, like a Blue Peter presenter. <laughs> youngsters? <laughs> As a young, young YAs, as we okay, carry on. Yeah, uh, as YAs, <laughs> uh, we, uh, we 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 played, mm. we played it, and uh, that was that was terrible. Storm King's Thunder, and Fifth Edition is the most we've played D and D over a sustained period, and yeah. it's also the most we've played, well, from your perspective, you played a character that's gone from first to ninth, tenth level, that kind of thing. Yeah, zero to hero. Uh, yeah, type yeah, thing. yeah. You've done the kind of. It feels yeah. it's quite satisfactory because it feels like you've played it yeah. and I've run it. Yeah. Um, through the full range, if you like, from first level to sort of ninth level, fighting a decent array of monsters and, and using spells and feats, and you feel like you kind of know it inside out, really, yeah, yeah. Now, don't we? Yeah. 
So there's different kinds of uh, campaigns. There's the uh, episodic campaign. Yes. Um, with, uh, with just like a series of connected uh, adventures. There's the um, campaign that has an overarching ticking mm. time bomb. Yes, ticking time bomb, yeah. Masks of Neathletech, yeah. which has yeah. just yeah. been uh, re-released. You know, there, there is an... You've impelled to sort something out because yes. if yeah, you're yeah. not in a certain yeah. place by a certain time, the end of the oh, world. Hell's in a break, please. Yeah, that's the end of the world. The stakes have got to be high for yes. the campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they don't have to be, but they feel like they have to get increasingly. They have to kind of escalate, don't they, a bit? That's yeah. the very nature. I mean, you can do the episodic thing, but I'm, I don't know whether that's a campaign. Is that a campaign? Is doing a series of separate events, uh, completely separate adventures with the same characters a campaign or is that just playing over a sustained period i think i think a campaign by definition is an interlinked and it might have episodes but they're, in, they're interlinked episodes interlinked uh, moving towards some climax yeah some greater goal and some kind of overarching plot there's a plot arch behind it isn't it? Yeah. a plot arc rather behind it that holds it all together and is leading you in a particular direction yeah because otherwise, it's like comparing Coronation Street to Lord of the Rings, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Which is easy to do. <laughs> well, Ian McKellen. There is a scene in Coronation Street. I always remember a scene as a child. It's in Coronation Street where Ken, Ken Barlow is reading Lord of the Rings. It's a comment about he's reading Lord is of it? the Rings. He is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's reading Lord of the Rings. I just remember that thinking. And of course, Ian McKellen's yeah. appeared in both, hasn't he? Yeah, so that connection. It's about Bubble Baggins. Bubble Baggins. <laughs> Ken Barlow. Yeah. <laughs> you shall not pass the Rovers. <laughs> but yeah, there, there, is, there is that thing, isn't there, where you've got um, a group of characters who just have a series of uh, Yeah, adventures. a series of adventures that are separate. And then there's the idea of having a bigger, a bigger campaign. To my mind, that's what a campaign is. Yeah. It's a bigger set of adventures with a bigger plot. Back in the day, we were more likely to write our own adventures, but now with limited time, we're more likely to grab hold of a yes. campaign. And you'd think that'd be easier, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> but they, they, they do do that, don't they? Yeah, Wizard, of yeah, course, yeah. have yeah. got like big releases now. They like bring out one big campaign yes. a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They usually have the um, the source of an older adventure. Yeah. So it's like bringing yeah, it as an echo of something from the past, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. So this is um, reflects it against the giants. Against the giants, yeah. They also then build a lot of stuff around it, don't they? Yeah. So yeah. you'll get did you get a GM shield? You didn't need it, you were online. I did I did get one, yeah. I did get a GM's shield, yeah. Did it you? Had various bits of referency stuff on. So, yeah, but I didn't, didn't really need it. Did you get the uh, dice? The I didn't get the dice. Oh, the Storm King's Thunder dice. Storm King? Oh, yeah. They fully accessorise each of the releases. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that about the dice. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't have got them, no. <laughs> what did they, what were the dice like? I got a miniature. Giant sized. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big. Yeah. Don't get them in the ice. And um, they also bring out miniatures, a series of miniatures. Yeah, so, yeah, I saw some of those, yeah. Yeah, to kind of furnish your game with. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, it, but that's what I find interesting about it, that that is the strategy. And also... Yeah, it's an interesting strategy, isn't it? Because I suppose it, it does explain as well why it is 
such a popular game. This, this year's big release is this, and if you buy all this stuff, you'll be able to run it, no problem. I would question that. <laughs> yeah. I would question it. But in principle, that's what they're selling you. They're selling you, here's a game, and yeah. every year we'll sell you, send you, a, sell you a big campaign thing that you can play with your friends around the table, and we'll sell you everything you need to do it. So this thing of inventing your own adventures and spending time doing that isn't really an issue. Yeah. Well, Despite that actually being a lot of fun, doing that kind of thing. Yeah. It's kind of one of the joys of... It's odd, really, because it's one of the joys of role-playing, I think, making yeah. up your own adventures. But I still think people are doing that, but I do think that it's appealing to those people who are time-poor, yes. cash-rich, yeah. yes. yeah, and yeah. want to yeah. invest in stuff. Yeah. It's a way of saying yeah. to them, yeah. you know, Read that. Read this. Buy these figures. Buy this game. You can. You can be sitting down playing something. Right? And and of course they release them across multiple platforms. So yes. this yeah, um, Storm King's uh, product, you got Roll Twenty. You I got the Roll Twenty package. Yeah. 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 Which is, in fairness, quite. It's quite impressive. It's an impressive thing because you buy it and you get all the plans, all the tokens. You get the whole adventure. Um, it, it's in a slightly different. I remember buying it and thinking. Will they send me a PDF of the adventure? But they don't. The whole adventure is sort of built into Roll20 yeah. as a hyperlink document. So you get all the words, but it looks like Wikipedia. Yeah. It's like a kind of D&D Wikipedia with links to all the monsters. Uh, and everything you need, really, is there. It is quite impressive. Yeah, you know, it, look, it looks very attractive as well. It does. It, 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 is. Really it, looks, good, it does look really good. And it, and it costs about 30 quid. Of 30 quid, it's good value for me. 30 quid, we, we played it for 18 months. It is very good, but I think it's interesting that I did end up buying the PDF. And I think you, you said this. I, I think when I, when I got it, I said to you, oh, it's fantastic, you don't need the PDF, you don't need the book. It's all yeah. there. But I did end up buying the PDF because yeah. there was a bit of my brain thought, I can't quite cope with this hyperlinked Wikipedia-style adventure. I, I, it's handy to have it there, but I do need normal pages is to, that to read through. <laughs> I'm just a normal person to read through these pages. That's the bit that I couldn't understand how you would, as a games master, be able to um, cope with it not being linear. I, I just you, think, can, you can read it linear. I mean, you can read it linear. But it's, that but thing, it's still a bit odd. It's that thing when you're reading a book, isn't it? Because yeah. even if you're reading a book yeah, on yeah. a Kindle, yeah. at the bottom it gives you a sense of the percentage that you're moving through. Yeah. And there were <laughs> there were huge scenes with loads and yeah, loads of tokens, big scenes with lots of tokens. Where it almost turned into a tabletop battle game rather than a role playing game, yeah. which was good fun. But it yeah, it's not. Perhaps we'll talk about that. Yeah, in a yeah, moment. yeah. How would you describe it to begin with? So we said about you know those different variants. Of, I would uh, describe it as a rather contradictory campaign. Right. It has a huge fault line running through it, in my opinion. Um, because on the one hand, it is a old school, go and find this, go and find that, go and kill that monster, go here, go there, save the sword coast from the giants and other things that yeah. are causing problems. But also within it, there's a big sandbox bit where you can wander around the sword coast and get involved in all sorts of little side quests. It says it's not a ticking clock adventure. Yeah. But I'd say it is. Because yeah. to get the players engaged, you have to give out the impression that giants uh, are causing chaos, attacking cities, do, wreaking havoc. Yeah. But when you do that, to get the players engaged in the main plot, you can't then say, 
Oh, but never mind that. Let's go wandering around the Sword Coast and meeting someone who farms griffins or meeting some criminal in a bar who's got... And all the, all the sandbox thing is very good. I'm not taking anything away, but it's very, very intricate and very good. But I think it stands at odds with trying to engage the players in the main thing. It's almost like... Yeah. You have to. It's almost felt like one or the other, and I think if I'd if I'd let you do the sandboxy bit, you'd have had fun, but you would have completely lost, lit literally lost the plot because yeah. you wouldn't know. And there's lots of little side plots with the giants, so I think you would end up a bit confused. It's a bit confusing. They yeah. don't quite. You, I'm not sure you can do sandbox slap bang in the middle of old school quest because yeah. a quest. You've got to get players engaged with the quest, but if you let them wander around somewhere doing their own thing, making their own connections with NPCs, or have nothing to do with them, absolutely nothing to do with the main plot, yeah. they're going to lose the plot. So what, uh, that was for me. That was the decision I had to make with it. So what you're saying is, is that this is a Lord of the Rings plot that desired to be Coronation Street. I think I'm right. I think you're right. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah. It wanted it wanted you to wander into the Rover's Return and talk to Kevin the mechanic or something. But on top of that, whilst you're in the Rover's Return, you find out Salford just up the road has been flattened by a bunch of fire giants. <laughs> oh right. Never mind. Don't worry about that. Uh, worry about this minor yeah. inc incidental plot that you're involved in. I think it's just got to think that works. Yeah, I think it's inevitable works. as players, isn't it, when you see something happening that your engagement, your drive, is to try and resolve it, isn't it? Yes, so, yeah. you know, it, yeah. something's unsettled them, yeah. but don't worry too much. Yeah, don't yeah. worry about that, unless you bump into some of them. Learn, and that's why I went to sort of steer you in the way of, yeah. say railroad, I did railroad. <laughs> but steer you in the way of the main plot. You didn't, you didn't railroad us, you, you flying ship to us. You got a flying ship, and you got that earlier actually. See, that's another thing. Yeah. You do get a flying ship, but um, you get that quite late on. So prior to that, there's an awful lot, a lot, and this is this is a bugbear of any role-playing game, isn't it? Yeah. There's a lot of travelling. Okay, who's on watch tonight? Yeah. Okay. No, nothing happens. Yeah. Who's on? Who's on watch? Who's on watch tonight? There's some wolves attack you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's three days. Two days. Okay. Third day. So, so who's on watch tonight? No, yeah. no, no, no. Not doing that. Yeah. Give him a flying ship. <laughs> I suppose that helps as well because it fitted in with the way that we were playing, and as we were saying mm. earlier, that it's hard to yeah. construct a campaign yeah. when you're an adult and you don't have that time to kind of the, the luxuriate yes. in the atmosphere. Yeah. Again, in in its defence, I suppose the fact we're on roll twenty every other Wednesday, I, I did feel a sense of. I want this session to count. I don't want to spend two sessions having a journey going from A to B because yeah. that just doesn't quite work. The dis dis discussion over breakfast and all that. Yeah, sense. yeah, you do want things to happen. And again, the old school bit of Storm Kings is very event-laden, I think. It's got good set pieces. In fact, it's, in fact, it's almost all set pieces, isn't it? It is, yeah. You know, but yeah. that worked for us, I think. Sounds like you had to make this work. You had to work hard yeah. to make this. And there work. are bit, there are bits you, there are bits you encountered that aren't in it. Yeah. So I think I put this is spoilers, isn't it? It's not spoilers because these aren't in it. But the mind flayer, I put mind flayers in it, and yeah. there aren't any. There are no mind flayers in it. 
Yeah. I just think they kind of worked quite well within certain bits of it. I thought they were quite a good monster. Yeah. In fact, it doesn't have quite enough monsters in it for my liking. A lot of giants. But... A lot of giants, but, but I added quite a few monsters to make it more interesting. <laughs> Cause, so this idea that you can get a book and play it, no, it's true, is it? No. no. <laughs> I had to do quite a bit. All we were doing each, each session yeah. was trying to tactically work out how we could best get out of the situation <laughs> or deal with the situation. Yeah. Um, so I found it very rewarding. Mm. And in a way, because they're set pieces, doesn't quite play out in traditional D&D terms because you don't have to worry too much about running out of spells or doing recovery rolls and all that kind yeah. of thing, you know, short rests and all that because it's very set piecey. You go, you go in fully powered to deal with something big and nasty but you're fully powered, they're fully powered and you'll thrash it out. But you're right, it, it's, it's very colourful. Um, the plans and the tokens help. Very colourful, very old school, you know, it is, uh, go here, go to this castle. Yeah, yeah. Something nasty in it, go and deal with it. Go and on. the, and the uh, NPCs are fairly broadly drawn. Yeah, they're, broad, yeah, they're kind of broad, sort of caricature NPCs. Before there's, a lot, we, there's a lot of fun in that sense. Before we move on, what is the best bit that we didn't do then? Best bit you didn't do was going to the Cloud Giant castle. Right. You do get a choice of where you go, and you don't have to go there. You can pick a giant. You, you yeah, gave us, yeah, a, you gave us a, yeah. an array of giants. There's a point where you have to go to one do of the castles, one of the giant strongholds. Do you fancy uh, facing fire? Do you fancy facing wind? Or do you oh, not wind. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or storms. <isn't> it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or fire and ice and all that. But the cloud, I like the cloud giant castle. Oh, there was a bit of me thought, I'll pick that, pick that, but you didn't. Because yeah. that is really good. Well, what stopped you from railroading us into that one? Yeah, there's only so much railroading you can do, isn't there? Yeah. I wanted you to have at least a sense of freedom. <laughs> you could choose something. General know? impression of freedom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I, if I give a player's perspective, because as we said earlier that this was the first time that we took a character from zero to hero. Yes. From, yeah. very, from mm. the first level yeah. uh, to uh, ninth level. Ninth level, yeah. And I played a, a sorcerer, which was a source of much hilarity because everybody called me a wizard. Because you're a wizard, you're not a wizard. Yeah. <laughs> and it, the sorcerer class in D&D 5th edition is really good. Yeah, yeah. Because it's that thing that this is magic that comes from a sense of intuition yes. rather than learned. You don't have to worry about losing your spell book, do you? No. Which is good. Yeah. <laughs> and, but the other thing is, it's like as part of the background creation and creating the character you have to describe what the source of your magic is what caused yes, it yes. and as an elf um, I had it as some kind of fungal infection that I'd uh, <laughs> learned to control <laughs> some cream for it yeah. like, no I don't want it don't like, take me magic away <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep itching but I've got magic yeah, like athlete's foot <laughs> athlete's, but, athlete's but, foot but I'm also a ninth level sorcerer <laughs> it's a reasonable bargain because yeah. I've had at least what? I don't get any <laughs> magical powers whatsoever. I enjoyed it most when I was at the mid-level. Yeah. That much fun when you're lower level and you're trying to uh, survive on cantrips. Yeah, so I've only got two spells and loads of cantrips, yeah. When there was those middle adventures where it was that thing where you've got to go and get this, you've got to go and recover that, you've got yeah. to do that. 
it was good using spells in a very tactical way. A lot of the set pieces are built round having a jolly good fight, aren't they? Oh, they are, yeah. You realise, playing 5th playing edition over that sustained period, you realise that it's all about action. It's all about action. They, they do have that thing where you roll your background and you roll some personality traits and you're supposed to get inspiration points, which I repeatedly forgot about completely. Um, but generally, it's all about, ooh, what can I do in a fight next? You yeah. go up a level and there's that sense of you look at you look at the spells or you look at your abilities and think, all oh, right, so I can, I can do this now. It is all action stroke combat related yeah it's all about those big fights with big monsters and it, <laughs> it has a kind of quality to it i did one of the really the funniest bits of storm kings was repeatedly at various sessions eddie eddie's gasps eddie's sharp intakes of breath yeah. when you realize as you go up the levels the monsters get worse but it becomes handfuls of dice it becomes 3d10 plus 10 and that kind of thing so it's huge amounts of damage and there was the moment there was the moment when we said 6d8 didn't I? what yeah. i said was 6d8 <laughs> so that's six eight-sided dice but you all thought i said 68 <laughs> and you all gasped but at the same time you all believed it because <laughs> that's the kind of damage these monsters were dealing with yeah, yeah. and and that's the thing it's a kind of escalatory system of arm um, it's like a kind of role-playing nuclear arms race, isn't it? Of, okay, I've got fireball now. You've got fireball. This giant can fireball you back. Yeah. I've got this now. I can do two attacks. This monster can do three. I've got this. This can do this. You get to ninth level, yeah. and it's a bit like a top trumps of effects yeah. against each other. And I think that's why I enjoyed more the moments when we were using our resources sparingly. Yes. So we, yeah. we didn't have... Loads of results. We didn't have loads of spells. We didn't have loads of ability. Yeah. But the opponents were yeah. pretty fearsome, so we had to sneak in. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's particular one that I enjoyed where um, the rogue was invisible. Yes, he, he was. He was invisible. He managed to steal something from around someone's neck while it's invisible. And there's that real tension because you realised if if he failed the rolls and they detected him. He was absolutely screwed. Yes. <laughs> he'd be dead. He'd be there on his own. <laughs> on his own, yeah. And there was those moments when, uh, as a sorcerer, I was sneaking into places and yeah. shrinking the uh, capstone that was yes. covering over yeah, the yeah, treasure, yeah. taking it, and, uh, yeah, those, those were great moments. But later on, I enjoyed it, but you realise the limitations of yeah. D&D. As mechanically, because yeah. it's great fun being those that very powerful yeah. um, characters facing powerful opponents, but at that stage it, bec it, it becomes more of a uh, artillery and yeah, firepower. It, it does. It, it, you're right, and and you do wonder what's it like at fifteenth, twentieth level. You yeah, know, it becomes kind of it be turns into superhero game. Yeah, it turns into a super. It becomes a supers game where really. You're flying around with a really good armor class, blasting things left, right, and centre. And there's nothing inherently. There's nothing wrong with that. No, there's a lot but of fun to be. There's a lot, it, and that's the thing. Storm King it was, it was tremendous fun, uh, but it, you realise it is what it is. Yeah. There's not much room for subtlety. No. There's not. There's not a lot of point playing D and D if you're a fifteenth level wizard, spending your time 
doing interpersonal role playing with some merchants or yeah. some trade deal in the cities. You know what I mean? That that, that kind of thing just doesn't work because you you come to a level where you think I am incredibly powerful, even at ninth level. Yeah, very very powerful. So how do I fit into this world as such a powerful person? And and you brought the thing of uh, inspiration. I thought character and role playing emerged through fighting. In yeah, the, it did. In yeah, this. Yeah, because yeah. it was a series of set pieces, you learn more about the characters about how they responded to different situations. Yeah, yeah. So so you had the rogue who was always having the final shot. Yeah. The druid who was the ditherer who. Yeah. Never knew quite what to do because <laughs> everyone was awesome. Eddie's problem is that he had room quest, his room quest head on. So yeah. when I said this giant does six d ten damage, yeah. he, he's been caught with it because he was thinking of room quest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> six d ten. He nearly passed out. So he did. Yeah. You had the uh, cleric who uh, would bless us all and uh, yeah. start hitting people with a corn cob. Yeah. Um, yeah, you had the barbarian who flew into a rage. You, mm. it, it ended up, you know, through the fights. He was rubbish. It was, he was rubbish. Wasn't it? <laughs> it was rubbish. <laughs> so many bad dice rolls. It's all made by until the end, and yeah. that became his yeah. glory. So yeah, yeah, he got he redeemed himself in the end. He redeemed himself in the end, yeah. and you had the ranger who. Uh, was coy about going forward, but when he realised how much power he had going forward, yeah, yeah, yeah. went forward. Yeah, the char- you're right, the character development came from the fight scenes. The, the, our older half-orc, Barbarian, and one of his personality traits was, uh, I look after my friends as if they were newborn puppies or something like that. Yeah. And again, that's going to come alive in a fight, isn't it? Because yeah, what yeah. it means is my Barbarian is going to stand between you, the other players, and the monster. So it's almost like the, even the role-playing element of 5th edition D&D that they've tried to build in sparks to life in a fight. Yeah. I've been playing for 18 months of Sorcerer. Yeah. And looking at the spell sheet, I think um, last time we said that uh, Enlarge and Shrink mm. got to be... The, and they are, they are game-changing. It's a good, it's a good, good spell, spell. good spell. But I'm going to make the case for haste. Yeah. I think that's that's a good yeah because it it did it was a game changer because if you cast it on a fighter or a ranger or a barbarian who gets two attacks they get four attacks yeah cast it on yourself you get two spells and I think there were many occasions where I used my sorcery points to extend yes. the range yeah, yeah. sorcery is really good really good character class yeah. Uh, I could extend my range, so I didn't need to even touch mm-hmm. the people I was hasting. I yeah. could do it from a distance yeah. and uh, set them into the yeah. fray. It was, and it, it was, it was a bit of a lifesaver at times. There were times where you were doing, you were struggling a bit, and then when you cast that on people, suddenly yeah. doing things twice, doing things twice, that or doing things in some cases four times. Is, yeah. You know, I think Ben's ranger kind of, when he was hasted, he sort of took things down in one round, didn't he? Yeah. Because he, if he hit four times, got the damage, four lots of damage, and something was completely annihilated yeah. within, within a round or two because he was hasted. Yeah. So the way that the plot set up is that the, there is a point where you hit a linear point towards the climax. Yes. Yeah. And it does feel like it, it, we could sense that feeling yeah. that we're going yeah, to yeah, fe- yeah. face the big boss. The big boss. Which is, a, we, we might as well say, aren't we? It's a, it's a huge dragon. It's a huge dragon. It is a huge dragon. But I, 
I do think that the innovation of legendary actions yeah. it avoids, it avoids that anti-climax, doesn't it? It, it does. It's a good rule, isn't it, that certain powerful monsters um, have these the ability to succeed on save. So they have that. I think certain powerful monsters can succeed on three saving throws. So there's that thing of if you cast a spell that petrifies them, it, it can initially not not event once they've used those three chances, um, they're as vulnerable as anyone else. Although yeah. they do get very good saving throws anyway, but it just avoids that problem of a lucky instant kill or an instant defeat, which you was always is always a problem, isn't it, with the yeah. big boss, isn't it? If they get so lucky. You're building up to this climax, as we said, you know, that part of the thing of this is a yeah. series of set pieces. You need the last one yeah. to be a big boss fight. Yeah. That. And and you know that the players know and you know that this thing's gonna get some free saving throws. So you're gonna have to make it use those, aren't you? And that means you're gonna have to last a few rounds of combat with it, which is quite difficult before you can defeat, have a chance of defeating it. Yeah. Which is, it's quite a good rule. It's quite yeah. a good thing because it does meet, mean those climactic moments are climactic. But again, you come back to that thing about D&D, don't you? It's all about the big fights. It's yeah. all about the big fights. It's all about fighting a dragon and making sure that it is a big, climactic, handfuls of dice, loads of magic, loads of stuff going on. That's yeah. what it's all about. And yeah. in a way, that legendary legendary saving throws and legendary actions that allow them to have certain actions within combat. So they get their turn, but then they get other actions within combat rounds. So again, that thing of six or seven adventurers versus a dragon, the dragon's going to get several yeah. other actions in between combat rounds as well, which makes it slightly more fearsome. But it is, it is all about climactic battles and huge set pieces. That's what D&D is all about. Yeah. And that, in the one sense, is tremendous fun. It has been tremendous fun. But on the other hand, if you want something more subtle, play something else. And I'm, I'm going to say that it's perfect for online play. Yeah, it is. It's good, it's good for online play because it is set pieces, isn't it? So yeah. people did generally turn up for sessions, but because it's very set piecey, if someone didn't turn up, you weren't stuck in the middle of a dungeon. No. You were you were either ending or beginning a new set piece, and it was easy enough to say they weren't present for whatever reason. Yeah. So it does work in that sense. Quite and you well. very easily, very soon, fall into the turn sequence. So you don't get that thing sometimes yeah. that happens with, um, with online play where people are over-talking and yeah. it's difficult to get heard. Yeah. Because yeah. your turn's going to come along, you know, you're going to yeah. get to the point where you can do it. Yeah. That's but that's why I found it easy. Yeah, it was, it, it, and that's why it was easy to run as well because very, very quickly, you were you're right. You very, very quickly you were rolling initiative and you had a turn order, and mm. then you thought, ah, right, it's easier to run because you know you're gonna have to wait. You wait for your turn and then you decide what to do. Yeah, that kind of worked quite well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eight out of ten. Eight out of ten. Eight out of ten. Storm your thunder. Eight out of ten. Eight giants out of ten. Eight giants out of ten. A big fat giant, eight out of ten. What was your favourite uh, NPC? Uh, my, my favorite, I think your favourite NPC, um, and I'm going to add another voice to your repertoire now. My favourite NPC was King Hecaton, oh, the yeah. giant king, who you ended up 
playing at I certain did, points yeah. in the style of Brian Blessed. Yeah. In, as, and he did the voice. He did the Brian <laughs> Blessed voice. I think I insisted on that. You could only you could only make him do things if you did it in a Brian yeah. Blessed voice. So not only not only is there Ian McKellen, someone from Brooklyn, James Mason, who is now yeah. podcast listeners, Brian Blessed. Yeah. Well, my my favourite was. You know what <laughs> uh, my favourite was that um, biggin that was on a cart. What was that one called? Oh, law, uh, goo, king, king uh, yeah, goo. There's a woman, is it? It's like a big um, woman on a cart. Big fat um, hill giant. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Can't move. She's on a cart. Can't move. She's so fat. She's eating to be the, become the biggest giant in the world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right. Yeah. He's, he's quite good. There's some good NPCs in it. Yeah. 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 There are. Yeah, the giant, the giants are quite good, um, good NPCs. Hill giants are a lot of fun, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. They're the weakest giant, but they're the most fun because they're kind of grotesque, yeah. stupid characters. Hoshnag's alive! The White Dwarf against the giants, then and now, once more into the steading of the hill giant chief, dear friends. Once more. When Wizards of the Coast, back in June 2016, announced that their new campaign book was going to be Storm King's Thunder, it generated a great deal of excitement, as the idea of giants really resonates in the public consciousness, even more so than dragons, I think. From our early myths through to furry tales, giants feature over and over again, occasionally friendly, but more often a fearsome threat. Even in modern stories, giants retain their sense of power. Jon Snow may know nothing, but he knows at least that when entering the wildling camp beyond the wall for the first time, to stare in awe as a twelve-foot-tall giant slowly lumbers past. And it's an awe we all share. Of course, for a few of us old-timers, the news about Storm King's Thunder also brought back fond memories of the grandpappies of all D&D modules, the Against the Giants G-Series. Originally developed for the D&D tournament at Origins 4, the G-Series modules were TSR's first published adventures for the game, released in 1978, once the company had finally got their act together and realised following the example of Judge's Guild, that RPG adventures really did sell. Gary Gygax then followed up the three G modules with the D series, but too busy with AD&D 1st Edition, Dungeon Master's Guide, he passed the baton for the finishing campaign to Dave Sutherland, who duly delivered with the remarkably innovative and imaginative, Gary's words, Q1, Queen of the Demon Web Pits. Taken together, the GDQ series of modules comprises one of the first great epic campaigns for D&D, justifiably held in great affection by those who played it back in the day. But what about now? Does it still stand up? How does it compare with its modern counterpart, Storm King's Thunder? I thought I'd explore some of the main themes of Against the Giant series, the plot, scenario structure, gameplay and locations, and see how they compare with their modern equivalent. I think it's safe to say that the 
moratorium on discussing the details of her 40-year-old adventures as well passed, but just in case you have been warned, potential spoilers ahead. The kick-off point of the plot of Storm King's Thunder is clearly inspired by its forebear. Marauding giants are causing trouble, laying waste to the lands of men. Go and investigate! A number of early encounters see the party confronting various types of giants, again harking back to the G-series, and both campaigns hint at a secret force, some motivational power behind this unusual banding of different races of giants. But then, stories soon start to diverge. In Storm King's Thunder, the characters get caught up in the machinations of competing factions, vying for power in the Forgotten Realms, not to mention eventually in the courtly intrigue of King Hecaton himself. The plot cracks along at a good pace, mixing combat with investigation and stealth, and there are several memorable NPCs along the way. Against the giants is a different beast. Whilst not explicitly stated, there's a strong emphasis on combat, not really surprising for early AD&D. The characters are tasked with dealing with the giants, and by dealing with, they mean engage in wholesale slaughter. The structure of the adventures is largely free form, with the characters free to roam where they wish about the various giant strongholds. The onion skin approach is taken. Buried deep in each complex is a clue leading to the next adventure, and so the party proceeds from the steading of the hill giant's chief, to the glacial rift of the frost giant Jarl, and finally onto the hall of the fire giant king, encountering the hideous king Snur, cutting an impressive figure in his black iron armour. Did I say finally? The true power behind the giants is revealed, the much-loved favourites of the tortured, moody goths everywhere, the drow. Pursuit of the evil Dark Elves leaves the characters to the D-series of modules, including encounters with the ancient fish people, the Ku Tower, in the thrall of their insanely named goddess, Blib Dul Pulb, and eventually leading to the underground drow city, Herel Hai Sinlu, complete with the power struggles between rival noble families that would make George R. R. Martin proud. Again, the structure of these modules is very open-ended, particularly in the third instalment, The Vault of the Drow. There's plenty of scope for the party to become involved in the politics of the noble houses, and a resourceful dungeon master could spin the setting out into numerous side quests and adventures. But then the ultimate truth is revealed. The drow themselves are being controlled by... The Queen of the Demon Web Pits, Loth. Thus, pursuing the campaign to its conclusion takes the adventurers to the howling, demon-infested abyss for a final confrontation with the Demon Queen of the Spiders. It's a pretty formidable and deadly concluding chapter, but with some nice touches of deadpan humour to lighten the mood just a little. In a similar vein, the giants in Storm King's Thunder are also subject to the manipulation control of higher powers, 
which the characters have to confront and defeat if they're to bring order back into the realm. So, despite taking a somewhat different route, both campaigns steadily build to a grandstanding conclusions and leave the players feeling that they've been involved in an epic story. From the perspective of gameplay, there's a much bigger difference between the two campaigns. Storm King's Thunder is designed to take the characters from first level all the way up to the higher levels required for the final encounters. When the armchair adventurers played it, we made it to the heady heights of ninth level, a record for many of us. With all the benefits of the many years of module design to draw on, the encounters were carefully calibrated to the level of the party. There was undoubtedly danger and moments where some characters came close to death, but ultimately our original party made it all the way to the end. In contrast, since Against the Giants is a Gary Gygax module from the early days of AD&D, that can mean only one thing. High level characters, and plenty of them, are required from the outset. Take the first module, the Steading of the Hill Giant Chief. On the first level of the complex alone, there are 59 hill giants to deal with. I know, I counted them. This really is Gygax to the max. The recommendation is to have a party of around 9 characters, with an average experience level of at least ninth level, armed with 2 or 3 magical items each. And that's just for the first module. As an aside, G1 also contains the details of the original tournament characters from the Origin 4. By far the most memorable thing about them is their names. They really are something else. It comes to something when Beak Gwenders is the least embarrassing name. Read the full list and you won't walk for a week. It'll take that long for your toes to uncurl. Come back, Bilbdoop-Dopoop, all is forgiven. Apart from all those giants and drow, the PCs face a cornucopia of D&D monsters. Mind flayers, trolls, withens to name just a few, and before they make it to the outer plains and have a face off with demons. Like I said, with the focus squarely on combat, these modules can be brutal, so a high level party is a must. Suffice to say, if you're going to encounter vampires just as a wandering monster, expect a few character deaths along the way. Exploration one of the three pillars of adventure. It says so in the 5th edition player's handbook, so it must be true. I sometimes feel it's given less attention in D&D than combat and role-playing, but it's always been one of my favourite parts of the game. Discovering weird and wonderful locations as a player, or revealing them to the party as a dungeon master, is an essential part of the magic of the game. And both campaigns really deliver when it comes to imaginative locations. Considering it was leased at the dawn of the concept of dungeon module, the steading of the hill giant chief is well thought out, it's a believable setting. It's not a zoo dungeon where the monsters calmly wait to be butchered. Instead it feels like a real place where the community of giants live, who want to take concerted action against intruders. Storm King's Thunder replicates this, with the hill giant stronghold at Grudhag. Both locations provide a real sense of scale and bring home to the players just what they're up against. They're taking on giants. Now, 
I don't know what it is about Frost Giants, but they seem to bring out the best in scenario writers. The stronghold of Stradborg is one of the most memorable locations in Stone King's Thunder. A ring of islands hidden deep in the frozen seas of the north, infiltrating the giant lodges to find an artefact that could take us to King Hecaton's court was one of the highlights of the campaign. With the glacial rift of the frost giant Jarl, Gary Gygax came up with a compelling setting too. A vast glacial rift, its vertiginous walls peppered with caves, adding a novel third dimension to the bog-standard dungeon. It's suitably epic stage for the characters to take on the frost giants as the boulders rain down. The follow-up, The Hall of the Fire Giant King, also conjures up a wonderfully atmospheric setting. The area surrounding the hall is described as a kind of mini Mordor, the blasted landscape of ash and desolation. This contrasts nicely with its grandiose marble and polished obsidian of the halls themselves, opulence on a grand scale. And as the party pursue the drow, the great locations keep coming. The shrine of Kul Tar is impressively ornate an ancient temple complex that comes as a surprise when encountered for the first time, having to travel through endless natural caverns. The city of the Drow, far, far down in the very depths of earth, is also highly evocative, countless centuries old and surrounded by high walls of black stone. It's a place that characters enter at their peril. Special mention has to be made, though, of the Queen of the Demonweb Pits. I don't know what Gary Gygax originally had planned for the grand finale of the series, but I don't imagine it could have topped Dave Sutherland's absurdist, nightmarish vision. The Escher-inspired Demonweb is a thing of wild invention, a multi-level tangle of pathways suspended in a swirling mist. Characters can float from one path down to a lower one, but should make sure they don't miss their landing, or they're swept away by the howling winds to be forever lost in the abyss. The first three levels of the web contain doors leading off to the various different rooms, featuring numerous traps and fearsome creatures to ensnare the party. But the fourth level is a bit special. The doors here are portals leading to whole other worlds on the prime material plane. The Demon Queen's web is wide indeed, stretching its tendrils far across the multiverse as she extends her power and influence. Each world is outlined with some evocative description and a few hooks to drag the characters in if the Dungeon Master so chooses providing scope to turn the module into a campaign within a campaign. The final confrontation, yes, it really is final this time, borders on science fantasy as the party faith love aboard her mechanical spider ship. Storm King's Thunder has a suitably grand stage for its conclusion, but nothing quite like this. So there you go. Two campaigns published nearly 40 years apart. I really enjoyed playing in Storm King's Thunder. It was the first time I played in a long-running D&D campaign for many years. Many thanks to Judge Blythe for running such a great game. There was adventure, danger, laughs, intrigue 
and plenty of combat, but also that shiver of excitement on encountering a giant. A reminder of all those years ago when I first fought against the giants. Games Master's screen! Okay, so back in episode 6, we went in some detail into Dungeons and Dragons. We had a monster off where we fought between our favourite monsters. We had a spell off. Uh, that wasn't a spelling competition, that was uh, having a battle over which was the best spells. But now it's class war. Welcome, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. So, you ready for this? As ready as I'll ever be. Okay, what I'm going to do, I'm going to erect this Games Master screen. It's the Stone King's Thunder one. So, yeah. it's, it's really big. I can't see over the top of it. No, and there's nothing useful written on the other side. <laughs> I'll. Uh... <laughs> I'll look over the top. Now, when when we looked when we before we before we do this, when we looked at D and D back in episode six, the question we kept posing was: Does D and D create power gamers, or do power gamers play D and D? Now, having played D and D over the last eighteen months, what do you think? Well. A lot of people play D&D, so the assumption would be, if you argue it one way, the assumption would be there's an awful lot of power gamers out there. But I think the game itself does not necessarily turn you into a power gamer as such, but it it leads you in that direction. It almost necessarily leads you in that direction. Because, it does, doesn't it? Because when, when, when you look at these classes, so we're going to look at uh, classes in some detail, it does... It does encourage you to optimise your benefits, doesn't it? Your features. When you when you're yeah. going up the levels, yeah. what you're trying to do is to make sure you've got the edge. And um, previously, when we were talking at Port Street, we talked about the escalation of feats and powers, and how the monsters start to develop them. So you need to have the edge, don't you? And so when you're going yeah. up there, you're trying to find the edge, aren't you? It's, it's like a kind of weird arms race, an RPG arms race, isn't it, of, of getting one better feat or one better stump than the monsters have got. And you're right, because I think what you do is you, you pick a character class and you roll your character, and then your instinct is to then look at the player's handbook and look at what you get as you go up the levels. And in, in fairness to D&D, you, you do get good things as you go up. So it is rewarding from character progression point of view. You do get good things, but they are very good things. So they, they do escalate and make you more powerful, where as in some role-playing, so in, so in RuneQuest, for example, you know you get 5% on your skills and you, you gradually, incrementally build your skills up and up and up and up. Whereas in D&D, you can suddenly get the ability to, you know, turn into a bird at seventh level or something like that. Or... I suppose we've got to bear in mind that, you know, other games such as RuneQuest are more gritty uh, type of fantasy, aren't they? This is high fantasy. Hmm. But I think it's something more than that. I think it's something more about um, this optimization. It, in some ways, it feels like a video game. <laughs> yeah, like like a video game where if you press these three buttons very very quickly, it does some extra special thing, yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. I know what you mean, like stackability of ability, things. Where all oh, right, I can attack twice and I do some extra damage, and uh, I can do a dodge and I can do this and I can do that, and and all rolled up into a sort of ball of superpowers almost. 
I mean, there will there will be people who are power gamers just by their very nature, but I do think that it, the game itself takes you in that direction. Yeah. Even even to the point where, with the stats, when you roll in your character, you've got an eye on maximizing the stats that really gives you a bonus depending on what class you are, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's not just the feats; the whole thing is is about edging your character so that. Yeah, it's, it's you know. See, some people some people will argue that it's to do with the style of play, but I say that the mechanics drive you in a particular way, and notwithstanding the fact that this is a great edition of D and D, I think I'm coming to the conclusion that it does create power gamers. It, I am the opposite of a power gamer, but when I was playing that sorcerer. I was looking at the way in which I could enhance myself and um, be better rather than, you know, as you know, in previous uh, incarnations, I was, I just get um, a floating disc just because I like the idea of it. Yeah, I think you're right. And and I think at the risk of preempting our conversation about our, our class war, I think when you look at the classes and you're trying to weigh up which are the best, it, it does descend into which has the coolest abilities and which has the best this and the best that. So yeah. it does, you're right, it does. I think I think playing it for 18 months, I mean, as, as a Games Master, not a player, but as a Games Master, being able to kind of watch you as players develop, you, you do realise that someone playing that game who is interested in character development or playing a colourful colourful character is going to be completely outshone by someone who can I don't know, blow things up and fly and dodge out of the way and deal double damage and all that kind of thing. In front of me I've got a, a table and on that table I've got the four core archetypes that still exist in D&D so you've got fighter magic user and a thief, roguish uh, characters and of course the cleric. So I'm going to roll on this table to see which we get. Okay, you ready for this? Mm, okay. I've got I've got a D4. Okay. Uh, I've got one. I've got a fighter. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And uh, you've got four. That's a cleric. That's a cleric. Oh come on! See, look. Hang on. I've not fudged that. No, that's one of the secret. Secret Games Master's roles behind the screen, wasn't no, it? No, hang on. Let me just step over the what, top of the screen. Show me Look. the four now on a D. Look. You just show me. You just show me the four on a D four. It proves nothing. <laughs> In, take it from me as a judge of court of law. I wouldn't stand up. I've rolled the dice, and I'll now bring it from behind the screen and show you the number four on it. Right. Well, what does that prove? <laughs> let's All right. Have, let's All have right. a class war. Let's have a class war. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. Maybe. Maybe it won't be so bad. But okay. go on. Do you want me? Do you want me to go first? Do, yeah, yeah. You, you go, go first. You go no, first. You go first. I've got to have a think about this. All right. Well, I'm going to go for um, the barbarian. All right. In okay. the fighterly mm-hmm. classes, Joe played a barbarian, in it, and we've mentioned before, he ended up coming good uh, at the end of the campaign, and I think that says something about how the new edition has. Uh, enhance things because fighters usually get muscled out don't they at the higher end of uh, campaigns because the spellcasters come to the fore 
Yes. I still think that the way that the barbarian character class is designed, it gives its uh, abilities and and some role-playing elements that make it more interesting and can contribute um, much more um, at the back end of campaigns. So one of the things that, um, of course, they can do is this rage ability, which uh, halves the, uh, the the damage. It can also act like Conan and uh, not wear a vest in battle. Um, yeah, that's a quite. A, 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 I mean, again, we're doing that thing, aren't we? Power gaming thing, but that's quite a neat ability that you can use your constitution as well as your dexterity. So if you get a good constitution, a good dexterity, you become hard to hit but you're not wearing any armor the idea that you're kind of dodging and agile and tough and that kind of thing yeah. it's quite it's quite a good idea yeah yeah, yeah. and i also yeah. like uh, later on because um, a lot of these character classes um, have paths that you can take i like how um, you can take the path of a totem warrior and take uh, a totem item to uh, be your um uh, what your character's attached to. So, mm. you know, a bear, eagle, or wolf. Yeah. And depending on the path that you take with those totems, they give you additional benefits. So I think uh, Joe in our uh, Stone King's game, he was, took the path of the eagle and it allowed him to have uh, better vision and he was able to uh, preempt some of the things that were happening because he had these abilities mm. and special insight which yeah. again was good because it gave him an enhancement that made his character class still relevant, even when we we're up against really, uh, really difficult things. And I think the uh, with the bear uh, uh, totem, you can actually reduce the damage as well on top of uh, your, your rage damage, can't you? Well, yeah, because when you rage, you, you take half damage, but only against normal attacks. But I think the Path of the Bear gives you half damage against all attacks. When you have the, you have you have so many rages a day, don't you? Yeah. Kind of berserker attacks that you get an increased number per level. Um, but no, I, I think you're right. I like the Barbarian, and I think if I was forced, because I'd probably have to be forced to play a fighter character, because I'm not I'm not a big fan of fighter character. Because I I think they become a bit they become a bit dull because all you're doing is going around hitting things. And, and that gets a bit boring. But if I had to play a fighter, I think the Barbarian is the one I would play. Because because as well, they, they, they have they get abilities. There's like a sense danger ability as well, isn't there? Yes. Which is almost like a spot traps. So they get these kind of really useful. The reason I like them is the reason that I like the Sorcerer character class. Because a Barbarian, all, all its abilities are kind of inbuilt. So you're yeah. not relying on wearing heavy armor. You're not relying, you, you know. You're, you, you, you know, you're not relying on the stuff to protect you. It's kind of an innate ability that you can dodge things. So you get a good armor class, so you can end up with an armor class of seventeen, eighteen, and you're not wearing any armor. You can avoid. You can sort of soften the damage. You, you, you know, that you, you're not using magic or anything like that. You're just halving your damage. So you become a very good fighter, but you get. That kind of thing that it's innate. So, like a sorcerer in fifth edition is a good character class because your spell casting is innate. So, no one can take it away from you. So, if you take a prisoner, for example, you know, a fighter can be stripped of his arm and stripped of his weapons. So it becomes a bit uh, vulnerable. Whereas, barbarian, you can strip him of his weapons, but you can't strip him of his armor. He's still, 
unhit kind of difficult to hit and if you do hit him he's going to be taking half damage so they they're good they feel like good good kind of solid characters that are good good in any situation if that makes sense yeah. i think that's you know that's what's good about them and it... sorcerer is the same that it, the spells you can't take his magic off him can you because it's in here you no. can't take his spell book off him i do think that it allows you to be creative with the character as well because a bit more different from the rest of the party it gives them license to behave in a particular way mm. and the way that um joe was able to interact with npcs in different areas of the sword coast because of his associations really yeah. helped as well i think that was an interesting development yeah the kind of tribal thing is is something you can uh it's very easy to sort of latch on to that and develop it as well as a character from a role-playing perspective so yeah yeah and finally i put it forward because the barbarian has a strong heritage in the uk i'm not for saying that we're all barbarians although <laughs> But but the Barbarian class, of course, debuted in Imagine magazine Mm. for Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. 1d12 hit points. It it should be chosen only for its use of the 1d12. (laughs) D12 being dusted off. Oh, is this what it's for? It's for a Barbarian's hit points. (laughs) And for nothing else (laughs) at all. So I put forward the barbarian. What are you okay. going? To, what are you going to put well, against it? Well, you've given me cleric, haven't you? Sorry, no, you've you randomly decided cleric. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I'm not going to pick cleric, am I? Because clerics are a bit. Clerics are a bit better in fifth edition. But I still don't like clerics. But what I do like, and I I used to like these in first edition, uh, although they they were a bit, they weren't perfect in first edition. But I actually think this is, I think this could be the best character class in 5th edition. It's certainly up there. Is a druid. A druid? A druid, which is a sort of clerical class, isn't it? Because they get they get some kind of cleric spells. But some of the spells are a bit better, I think. Slightly more kind of offensive spells that they get. Um, and the reason I, I just don't like the druid is, I, I love... The shape changing a bit. The wild shape thing, where you can change into an animal three times a day, is a fantastic ability. It's probably my favourite ability in D&D. For the simple reason that it's like having three invisibility spells. You know, turn into a mouse. You're more or less invisible, aren't you? Uh, you've got spider climb, because you can climb things. Turn into a monkey, you can climb up something. When all the other players can't climb, you can climb. So you can use that to get all those kind of abilities, you can go and spy on things, turn into a bird, spy on things. I, I went, in Storm Kings, Eddie played the druid and he would repeatedly turn into a squirrel and go on reconnaissance missions uh, undetected. So I think the wild shape thing is a fantastic ability because it just gives you so many options in terms of what you can do with it. You can get into trouble, get out of trouble, you know, turn into a bird. You want to track someone, turn into an animal with a great sense of smell and track them. You can do so much with it. I think it's a, it's like having three extra spells in your back pocket. Remind me, because as we've said, the with the classes, a certain level, you can start to choose pathways, can't you? Choose the 
about fifth. Yeah, sixth well, level. that's another that's another thing with the, that's good about the Druid. You have these kind of different uh, pathways, like the path the path of the uh, moon and the path of the earth and the path of ice and the path of this that, and the other different aspects of the world, and that gives you access to certain magic user spells as well, which is is a good thing because it gives you some more slightly more beefy spells that you can pick as well, which is a good thing. Um, and again, I suppose, I suppose, well, you're not, you're not as puny as a wizard or a sorcerer in as much as, you know, if somebody gets up close and swings at you, you've got a better chance of surviving it. Slightly more hit points. You've got a bit of armor. You've got weapons. But rather like the barbarian, I, I think I like about the druid is, it's a very accessible class, isn't it? Because you know what it's about, don't you? The same way that a barbarian, you know what it's about. You know what a druid's about. You know what they are. You know, that there's always a problem with clerics, wasn't it? What what are they? They're like priests, I know, but then you've got to pick a cult, haven't you? To pick a god and call it all that kind of nonsense. But a druid is a kind of all round yeah, he's like a priest of the earth and he uses the earth for his powers and that kind of thing. And it's like easily it's easily accessible. Easy to kind of get your head around that that's what you are and what you're about. I think similarly to the um, Barbarian, it's a class that engages with the setting, isn't it? Because yes. yeah. um, the way that it works with, as you say, these different pathways or different circles that you can uh, join into, mm. it does have some relevance, doesn't it, to the to the yeah. world? And uh, yeah. as well as being giving you a mechanical advantage, they give role-playing opportunities. And it bridges that gap as well between the cleric and the wizard, doesn't it? Because the the, the thing that the, the thing is is that I always prefer playing a wizard or a sorcerer because I always like having the magic. But the the problem is always if you want someone in the party who can heal heal people and do all that that kind of stuff. The clerics, are, I just always think they're so far removed from a wizard. They've got spells, but they're kind of a bit rubbish. Whereas the druid does have some slightly punchier spells. And that that's a good thing as well. So you can be a druid and you don't feel as, I don't know, it doesn't feel as flat as being a cleric, to my mind. Yeah. Some people love clerics, don't they? They're big, they've got a big fan base, but for me, no. But I, like, I do like the druid. The druid's a really good class. Yeah, I think just going on the uh, broader look at um, clerics, I know that um, Steve has made the point, he played the cleric in Stone Kings and Thunder, that... You know, as time went on and we became more powerful, his relevance reduced because, yeah. you know, in those early sessions, we relied on him as we were doing um, uh, death throw, saving throws, uh, for him yeah. to yeah, leap yeah. in and yeah. uh, recover us. Uh, but we never really got to that point, did we, as we got more powerful. And so his, his contribution was reduced. And I think he only stayed relevant to the game because he had a, a wand of lightning that we named Lucille. Yeah, I, I suppose at the end he did get a resurrection spell as well, which was kind of useful. Didn't have to use it, but that was quite useful. But no, I think you're right. That's one of the problems with the cleric. He, he does, it's a bit of a tame character class. I just always think it doesn't quite work, but the druid is, is better. And the druid does have healing spells as well, so the druid could do some of the clerical stuff. And... You can just, I don't know, you can just picture, oh, I'm a druid, yeah, all right, I know exactly what that is, I know what that means. And, of course, in 5th edition, you can be any alignment as a druid, so you don't have to be. That was always the thing with 1st edition, you had to be neutral. 
He always had to be neutral as a druid, as a druid and that felt a bit rubbish. But um, in 5th edition, you can be any alignment, which again adds a bit of colour to what your character's all about. Um, and they just have a bit more bit more bite and a bit more punch to them than a than a regular cleric, I think. We were very reasonable there. I don't think <laughs> we weren't we weren't poking and prodding each other in areas. I think it's because I, I agree, I agree. If we had to pick those uh classes I I thought I think the Druid's a fantastic class as well. Um, yeah. and I've seen you play uh, the Druid in uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons uh, and you've always uh, taken the full opportunities with that haven't you to make it yeah. work yeah I do I think it's good Mate, there, are, there are some other notable uh, character classes as well in it I mean the Sorcerer we've mentioned that Sorcerer's a really good character class yeah because of that innate magic you don't get you don't get access to as many spells because you can't have a spell book but that just that fact of no one can take your spells away from you. Don't, you just don't feel as vulnerable as a wizard who's always got to guard that spell book. Um, and you get the sorcery points, which allows you to manipulate spells as well. So you might not get quite as many, but you can manipulate them to make them last longer or do other things, which is handy. And I think as well, you got the other character class that we, we really noted during Storm Kings is the rogue as well, you know, because I think the rogue is a is a brilliant character class in fifth edition, much much better than a thief in first edition. Alan's um, sneak attack was uh, brought down lots and lots of monsters, and it's a sneak attack as well that doesn't that that is kind of mechanical rather than at the game's master's discretion. Because I I always remember playing a thief a long long time ago and trying to backstab and hide in shadows. And the game's master sort of saying, oh, well, there aren't any shadows. Yeah, it's floodlit. Oh, yeah. It's floodlit. Oh, you, well, you, you can't really backstab. He's aware that you're there. But in 5th edition, the sneak attack is simply if a friendly a sort of ally, rather, is within five feet of an opponent, you can do a sneak attack on that opponent. The idea being, I suppose, that it's not so much a backstab, but it's just taking advantage of the fact that they're distracted. And Alan did that a number of times with it with a with a bow, and in the end, that bow was like an exocet missile, wasn't it? It was almost it was as good as a fireball taking taking people out, and that's really good because it's not something that's up for debate. It's it's a mechanical thing, so it gives the thief, well, not the rogue, but it's kind of like the thief, that little bit more relevant. It's like you say, it's relevance, isn't it? In in Storm Kings, you could see that the by the end, the rogue was still a relevant character and also as a rogue you can you can go down those you get those pathways so you can go down the pathway of trickster and get some magic as well so you can actually be a little bit of a spellcaster which is which makes you uh it's kind of a handy thing as well so i do think as well as the druid and the barbarian i think i think the rogue and the sorcerer are uh are great character classes well we'll need our best barbarian and druid skills because we've got to head down uh eddie's garden to his shed so, I'll pass without trace I'll meet you there so, so Mrs Eddie doesn't see us see you there <laughs> see you there oh, shit. So he, he takes security very seriously I don't know what this bad wires about right to keep you out <laughs> hello 
Hello, Ed, in his shed. How are you doing? Hi there, Dirk. Hi there, Blythe. Just, just mind the shopping trolley. Is this your BMX? It was. Oh, right. Years ago. It's a bit small. Oh, it's a chopper, actually. Less said about that, the better. Yeah. <laughs> right. So at this time, we've been talking about campaigns. Why, why is it that we always feel the need to play a campaign? I don't know. It's like the ultimate uh, gaming peak, isn't it? So you kind of, it's not enough to just do one adventure. Ten weeks of immersion in this world, the whole thing being linked, it just kind of feeds imagination. One of the reasons why we've come to the bottom of the shed, because mm-hmm. we know, and this, this goes back to way back when, I remember going into your bedroom back at uh, Eddie Towers, back <laughs> in the day, and you used to have a lot of um, books lined up of fantasy trilogies, and you had a, a, a bus ticket where you abandoned it, yeah, and you used to say, <laughs> oh, that's rubbish, that, yeah, rubbish, that. Because what we need to talk about is the idea of campaign fatigue. That's right. When does it, when does campaign fatigue kick, kick in? I think it's worth saying as well, and this is a tip for anyone who's listening, that uh, one thing you did used to do with those books was uh, read them very carefully, and if you didn't like them, take them back to the bookshop <laughs> and say that you got it for your birthday, but you already That's had right. it, so you could get a refund. And, and you know what? They would give you a refund. Yeah. It worked. Well, if you're very careful, you didn't break the spine. Exactly. So you had to break very carefully. Don't break the spine. <laughs> if you don't like it, take it back. So I've right. ended up with two of these. Got to swap it for something else. That's right. You I, think, you, I think essentially you only ever bought one book and just you kept swapping it, it endlessly. Like it's a public <laughs> library. That's why that bookshop went out of business in Bolton. <laughs> so where does, where does fan, campaign fatigue and when does campaign fatigue kick in? Well, sometimes it can kick in before it even starts. So if you, it depends how long it is before you start the campaign. <laughs> <laughs> the rate we play, I mean, in the old days, you never, I don't think you had time for campaign fatigue. You bought it and you were running it Yeah. two days later. You know, I mean, but no, you could buy it 12 months before you intend to, read, to, to start mm. it. But because we only play once a month or whatever... It could be two years before you're actually sat at the table, so you're actually bored to tears. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's true. Because I've done that. You, you get a campaign, you read it, you get very excited about it. That's right. But then you realise that six months in, um, and you're still living with it, and you feel mm. sometimes like you want to do something new. You change, you know? don't you? you, you, mm. you your emotions change. You kind of desire to run a different game. Kicks in. You watch a film and some, or you read a book. Yeah. Another interest suddenly yeah. enters your head, and you think. Yeah. I've I've got to run this to its conclusion. You feel yeah. obliged to kind of finish, finish I, the job. I think that's true, and I think it's that's interesting what you say about the fact that when we were younger, you could run a campaign in a couple of months and yeah. then move on to something else and feel that satisfaction of a big storyline and a big campaign very yeah. quickly. Whereas now, it takes longer because mm. we don't have as much time to play. And Two years right, to do something. It gets a bit stale. It can get feel a bit stale in your in your head, not as a player. But as a games master, in your head, it's it's gone off the boil a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's a, that's a good. So case, case, case in point. Um, so uh, as one dungeon door closes with Storm King's Thunder, we're about to open another fifth edition D and D game mm-hmm. with Curse of Strahd. Yeah, and it's undead and not <laughs> and not rising, and and that's partly because of that, isn't it? That you spent a long time. Before we even got started, on it. yeah. So to me, I've played it 
four or five times in my head. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the thought of doing it again is kind of quite wearisome from the GM's point of view. So you, you kind of, you're at a different place mentally than the players who are p- potentially, because they've had other interests going on, running other games or uh, doing other things, have come to this fresh, ready to roll, and you're kind of... Ooh, I've got two years of this. <laughs> two yeah, years. I've got, I've got two years and a gothic, I know what happens at the end. A gothic horror thing. Yeah. Straight after, say, my case, I'd run a horror fungi from Yugoth and suddenly think, oh, God, that's four years in, in horror. When I like a bit of fantasy as well, or sci-fi, all them yeah. others do play on your mind. You kind of think, do I, do I want to do something else? And it just eats at you sometimes. But, you know... So Curse of Strahd is more than um, Storm King's Thunder, from what I understand. It's based on uh, Ravenloft, so it's much yeah. more of a dungeon-based uh, The adventure. ending is, I think... The, well, I don't want to put any spoilers in there, but uh, it's the whole campaign is set in a world uh, called Barovia, so there's adventures within that. Uh, but there's certain dungeons, but ultimately the climax of the campaign is in... I don't think it'll spoil it to say it's in Castle Ravenloft, which is, I don't know, uh, about 200 room dungeon. <laughs> <laughs> you get out in there 12 months, basically. So you'd be in there for a long time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, to do this, you uh, deployed the latest technology by taking your telly off the wall. That's right. I mean, people have seemed to be amazed at that. I posted a picture on Twitter which kind of astounded a lot of people, but it was very, very simple. It wasn't particularly, if so, I can do it, anybody can do it. So just describe, um, if people want to replicate your um, electronic tabletop, how do you do it? Well, you have to have the maps in in a, in a, a certain electronic format on your computer. So you have, in the case of Curse of Strad, I had the excellent maps by Mike Schley, which he did the... Almost most of the maps for the campaign, they are fantastic. So once you've got them on your laptop, you can look at them and, and view them. And all it was a case is, was having a lead from the laptop to the TV, flipping the TV onto its back on the table, and there you go, you've got a ready-made desktop to play to, with your maps on. So yeah, and see. it even had a fog of war, so how did you achieve that? Right, this is where it gets a little bit complicated. Yeah, you right. can download a free programme called GIMP, uh, which is a, a similar to Adobe Photoshop, but it's free. GIMP, you're making GIMP. that up, aren't you? Yeah. No, it's called GIMP. <laughs> you're, you're telling me that you bring out the GIMP. Don't whatever you do, don't, don't go typing don't GIMP. Get, go get the GIMP. Google. We're not, we're, we're not responsible for what you get. You type GIMP into you Google, that. you will not get... <laughs> you, will not, not get <laughs> you will get an artistic programme. That will be the first hit, I can guarantee you. Uh, Take your word for it. And all of that does... You upload the map into GIMP and you add a layer to it, which is, in my case, black. It's very simple. You add one layer over the top, black, and then you have a, a, an eraser. And you just, as the adventurers go along, you just erase the sections of the map that you want them to see. And it's as simple as that. And so the, doing, there's plenty of tutorials for GIMP telling you how to add a layer and then how to erase it. So I'm not going not bore yeah. you with the details of that. But, but it's not that hard. No. The beauty about it is is that you do not need to print off a map, which is probably twice the size of the table <laughs> that you'd be playing on. And now you imagine that wasn't the issue. 
the size of the map. It was the issues of the, the, the players suddenly decide, you lay out your map on your table already for the players to turn up. And suddenly the adventure decide to go down some stairs to the next level. What do yeah. you do? Do you rip the whole map, which is massive, off your table and physically put the next one on your table and try to cover it all up? You try doing the fog yeah. of war with a real map yeah. in the middle of a game. It's quite difficult when you yeah. don't know where the adventures are going, when there's three or four floors to a dungeon that they could go anywhere. That yeah. was that started me thinking that it's not going to happen, which is hence I thought I'd go digital yeah. if you're on a TV. Curse of Strahd, um we're not going to do it. So what is the next campaign you're looking at? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to, I think we might just do some one-offs for a little while. Yeah. Uh, and then... I think the way that we play, though... To refresh we, my brain, I think, before we go down. The way we play when we're face-to-face is we do, as a games master, you're three months on and then six months off, aren't you? So yeah, it's hard right. to keep a momentum of a campaign yeah, going. Yeah. Isn't and you it? feel stuck in that world. You do want to move. It's like when I did Griffin Mountain. That went on for a couple of years. Yeah. When you're doing that, you want, oh, I want to run this, but you can't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're stuck yeah. with it almost, aren't you? I think the best way to do it, really, is to do it in a kind of episodic way. So it's the same characters... In the same world, yeah. but different adventures or interlinked adventures, yeah, or, yeah. or a campaign, one or two, one or two sessions, and yeah. then do something, or else. a campaign that, as a games master, you kind of. But it's difficult, isn't it? When out there, you've seen every week there's a new product or a new yeah, game coming out, mm. and you're thinking, I'm locked into this for yeah. a period of time. Yeah. That's right. It's, it's yeah. hard work. Because yeah. you want to buy it, or you do buy it, you do go and buy it, because you know it's two months or six months till your next run your session. But, but that's the thing, yeah. I think that I, I think there's there's fun there's fun from a player's perspective playing the same character over a period of time because doing one shots with different characters and pre gens and all that kind of thing, I think from a player's perspective can be a bit tedious. It's nice to have characters. You you all enjoyed in Storm Kings going up the levels and getting new abilities and playing a character for a long time. But I think maybe the answer is to have campaigns that are, say, more episodic. So as a games master, you're not locked into two years worth of a scenario. Mm. You, you've got, you can kind of twist yeah. and turn the plot a little bit and, you know, do, do, I still, do one, one sort of almost like one shots with the same characters. I still think though. That. I still think though. There's temptations in when when your uh, slot comes up again to against master is to do something different. So yeah, I suppose yeah. You know, yeah. Well, I suppose you're a, you're a, a, a deeper rather than wider person, aren't you? But mm. when you things up, you want to try it. It's like nice back agents. We never yeah. really got going with that, did we? No, we did a couple, didn't we? Then we stopped. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, but I think. That, some of the, 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 the modern products are so overly written that they, they're tiring to yeah. read. Where I, I do like some of the older modules where they were, you know, from the 80s, where they, they give you the bare bones of a plot and you read and it's in your mind, but it doesn't, doesn't take over your mind for months. You can kind of just pick it, you can expand it, you can reduce it. A bit like Fungi from Yogurt. Well, that, that was there and it expanded bits and I cut out little bits. Yeah, and, I, and it and it give you a lot of freedom in it. Whereas Curse of Strahd was just bang information, almost overload. You had all that, and and you 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 felt you had to almost stick to it. You didn't feel you could vary it. Probably someone would argue differently. You could, but I felt there was a lot of information that you had to keep in your mind at that time. Yeah, and then 
like we've just said, there's other influence coming in. It just comes a little bit tiring yeah. to do. So this uh, episode, we've been talking about um, Storm King's Thunder, and in that, as a player, you were playing a druid. The dithering druid. The dithering druid. <laughs> the dithering druid. I think you were so dithering that one day you actually did it into a wall, didn't you? No, I was hiding from something. <laughs> something that may have killed me. Yeah, you immediately me- melted into stone. Yeah, melted into stone. stone. Yeah, that was a tactical manoeuvre. That to save myself getting killed. You didn't get killed. So uh, get it was touched. a very dangerous moment to have you know. And but, you had a habit of turning into a squirrel as well. That was your favourite creature for turning yeah. into something. Well, why you... wouldn't you? It can do anything, can't it? It's, it's versatile. Walk at walls. Walk at walls. Look through windows. Virtually invisible. I mean, you'd notice a squirrel looking in our window. You wouldn't, would you? <laughs> <laughs> so what was the highlight for you of uh, Storm Kings? Uh, there was quite a few. The whole feeling, it was nice to play a high fantasy, actually. Uh, it was, which we've never really played, I don't think. No, not that uh, scale. We've played a lot of it from the past and up to them. We've done Cthulhu and RuneQuest, which is all gritty, really, isn't it? Yeah. But that was like relatively liberating I think in the sense that you, you did feel in this big fantasy with lots of magic and an airship that took you from places to places it was uh, quite exciting in a way because it was like the boundaries are off here yeah you yeah. know you don't I, I think we started off playing it a little bit tactical and then hence why I dithered a lot because yeah. you kind of think oh I've got to think what I'm doing here we really just need to be like Joe and just head in there and yeah be bold be yeah. bold yeah, yeah. And just because chances of dying in it are a lot less than in, say, RuneQuest or War yeah. So it's... Uh, or Cthulhu. It's true. I, 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 I said, said earlier in the podcast that it took on a different tone towards the end because we were so tactical yeah. in the middle levels, weren't we? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, at the beginning, I remember me and you stayed at the back. Yeah. Because we're so used to doing that. So used to dying in RuneQuest. <laughs> yeah. So let the others die. <laughs> So then, but then obviously it wasn't happening, and they seemed to be having all the fun. I think we kind of grew into the campaign. Yeah. We thought, yeah, it's, this is not as dangerous as we yeah. thought. It just seemed to be a. Uh, well, I think that's true because as a games master, I could see in you two your RuneQuest brains gradually melting away yeah. when you realised that you could do things like turn into a. You could turn into an animal. You can sort of cast spells, those spells yeah. that are kind of. Fantastic spells, yeah. proper magical spells, yeah. And you could see your RuneQuest brains gradually melted away, and you became like more like a D and D player. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the other to remember what you could do, because you had yeah. a lot on your on your yeah. character sheet, didn't you? You had to think, what can I do? What spells can I use? Especially a druid. If God, if anybody plays a druid, no wonder I was dithering. You could do changing to animals. You got to know everything about the animal you're changing into. Summon all the animals point. as well. Summon animals. You summon you creatures. Know your you could head it for a games master because he's thinking, "Oh my god, what's he summoning?" That's right. Or summon a swarm of bats or something. Yeah. I don't know, or a, a dolphin or something. What well, like. did you summon? Some uh, sprites or something? About eight seven sprites, or eight sprites. Yeah. It's a nightmare. Not to drink. Yeah. Creatures. <laughs> yeah, it was a nightmare to administer. <laughs> Bottles of sprite for the party. <laughs> yeah. oh, thanks. Like, unbelievable the amount of things you could handle. Mm. So it it's kind of blows your mind in a way as yeah. a player. But uh, yeah, there's no particular point that, that that stood out for me. But just the overall, overall feel of the campaign was was good. And before I go, mm-hmm. what has been your most recent purchase? What have you been? Because uh, people like to know what you've been hunting down, the bargain hunter. Uh, the 
Well, apart, apart from my dodgy RuneQuest dice. <laughs> which we've been using this evening, Which we've we? been using this evening, yeah. which is true, isn't it? I mean, you didn't believe it was true, but <laughs> Dirk has found out his dice, because I'm so eagle-eyed. His dice is faulty as well. I'll have you know. Yeah. But apart from that, I think I bought... Is it the trail of Tsothogu? All right, yeah. C- a Cthulhu adventure from the 80s with original art, original cover. There's two versions. There's a compact one and that one, and I got that just because I like the cover. Daff, really. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, until next time, uh, when we come down to the shed, uh, I'll see you. Do you want me to uh, help you put this tally back up on the wall? Ah, go on then. If you haven't listened to episode six, where we talk about our long and complicated relationship with Dungeons and Dragons, I recommend you go back and listen to it and understand why it was never really our game. I have enjoyed playing fifth edition, as it works really well on the whole, and it's much better at doing the things that D and D does. It does what it does really well, but that's what it is, and nothing more. It's been great playing D and D, but. Eddie's decision to abandon the Curse of Strahd has offered a great opportunity to try something different that will scratch a different itch. Thanks to Daily Dwarf for his great essay about Against the Giants. His pieces are always very carefully written, full of nuance and wit that's sometimes lost with my stupid voice. And every year we collect them together in a booklet that's included with the annual grogzine as a gift to Patreon supporters. Volume 1 and 2 are available on PDF if you join the Patreon campaign. If you want a hard copy of Volume 3, which will include articles on 2000 AD, Judge Dread RPG, Paranoia, Golden Heroes, RuneQuest and the piece featured in this episode, then you'll need to be a patron by the end of October 31st, 2018. Comic book artist extraordinaire Mark Lamming, who is also a member of the Grog Squad, is planning another stunning cover featuring the dwarf, so it's not to be missed. The details of what's going to be included in the Grog scene have been updated on the site, thegrognardfiles.com. And there's a special offer to those who join the Patreon campaign before the end of this month, September 2018. If you're a new or an existing supporter, at the $3.5 a month level and above, then you'll get something extra with your grogzine. I've been designing a brothel and characters for a brawl that's taking place as part of Grogmeat this year. It uses the fantasy trip rules. Everyone who signed up at the end of September will get the brothel for their own personal treasure and pleasure. The Patreon campaign is entirely voluntary and it's a chance to give a tip if you like what we do. It helps to fund the zine, the hosting costs, the equipment and lots of associated stuff. And we are very thankful to those who help with the contribution, especially in these difficult times. And it makes sure that we get our fingers out every month and produce something. Thank you to you all. There's been some comings and goings over the last couple of months, so here's a shout out to thank those who've recently joined. Thanks to Jeremy Short, and Mark Barnes, who've joined at the $1 a month level. Welcome on board. Tom Zunder has been a vigorous supporter of the podcast on forums and other places, has pledged $2. Thanks, Tom. Adam Buxton, not that one, from Fantasy London, has increased his pledge to $3.5 a month. Thanks, Adam, and I look forward to meeting you at Grogmeat. 
at the $5 level, and I like to give members a virtual gift from the game under discussion, apparently at random. This time, I'm handing out magical items from the Storm King's Thunder campaign. So, first up, Lapsed Gamer. Thank you. You've got a navigation orb, a hollow seven-foot polished mithril, which allows you to float around in a cloud. I hope that there's room in your garage for it. Thanks. Rob Arcangeli, he gets the Rod of Vonning Dodd, or the Dodd Rod. Uh, adamantine rod bound together for use with a fire giant. Full safety instructions will be enclosed. Thanks, Rob. Uh, next, Graeme Smith. Graeme, you get Opal of the Ild Rune. Now, this is another fiery item, and it comes with a virtual extinguisher. Thanks, Graeme. Uh, Simon Parrins, you've got a conch of teleportation. When, when you put it against your ear, you can hear the sea. And because you're in the sea, and it's moved you there. Okay, thanks, Simon. Finally, Fred Kish, a long-time supporter, who's kindly upped his level to the top tier of $10 a month. He gets a worm skull throne made by the dwarven gods, polished obsidian that can pass through stone, fly and shoot out lightning bolts. So it's a practical replacement for your armchair. Thanks, Fred. I'll send you a handmade certificate to celebrate your new virtual acquisition. Welcome and thanks to you all. And thanks to everyone who takes time to write a review, write to us or chip in to help keep it going. Next time, we'll be having a bit of woof-ruff. Get down. Adios, amigo.